Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Navigating the HER2 Treatment Paradigm for Breast Cancer, is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Daiichi Sankyo and AstraZeneca. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this webcast titled Navigating the HER2 Treatment Paradigm for Breast Cancer. I'm Dr. Shanu Modi. I'm a professor of medicine at Wheel Cornell Medical College in New York City and a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Sarah Hurwitz of UCLA. Sarah, please introduce yourself. Hi, Shanu. So good to be here with you today. Um, I'm Sarah Hurwitz, medical oncologist and director of the Breast Cancer Trials Program at UCLA. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Um, so just to start, before we get started today, let's review our learning objectives. Uh, upon the conclusion of this webcast, participants should be able to distinguish between approved HER2-directed therapies to optimize sequencing throughout the treatment continuum, discuss potential additional indications for recently approved agents used in the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer based on the currently available data and ongoing trials, and identify the adverse effects, effects seen with recently approved anti-HER2 therapies and recommend appropriate monitoring and management strategies to optimize therapy. So maybe to set the stage, I'll just start things off here with a little bit of background. So HER2-positive breast cancer represents approximately 20% of all breast cancer, and it's defined as breast cancers uh, either with amplification of the HER2 gene and or overexpression of the HER2 protein receptor. So HER2-positive breast cancers fundamentally have an overabundance of the HER2 receptor on the cell surface, uh, and this is a driver of these breast cancers, and it leads to more aggressive disease that can uh, be resisted to conventional therapies. And so ultimately, having established HER2 as a driver in, in these breast cancers, uh, we've seen the development of a multitude of HER2-targeted therapies. Today, in fact, we have eight approved HER2-targeted agents, and this has really led to improved clinical outcomes for patients with this subtype of breast cancer. So it's really a great success story of molecularly targeted therapy. Uh, shown here are real-world curves taken from the French Metastatic Breast Cancer Registry, and you can see that as we've introduced new HER2-targeted therapies, we've seen an improvement in overall survival for patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and in 2013, uh, with the incorporation of the Cleopatra regimen, um, today we see a median overall survival for our HER2-positive metastatic patients of approximately five years. Uh, which is more than double what we were able to achieve in an era before HER2-targeted agents. So as mentioned, there are about uh, approximately eight approved HER2-targeted therapies, and we can group these as either monoclonal antibodies or tyrosine kinase inhibitors and antibody drug conjugates. And these all work in different and unique ways uh, and have led to improvements in, in clinical outcomes for patients with HER2-positive disease. 
So here is, I think, the most, I think, updated uh, treatment algorithm for patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and you'll see in the first-line setting, our preferred regimen is the Cleopatra regimen, which is dual HER2-blockade with trastuzumab plus pertuzumab and ataxane. In the second line, it, we now uh, prefer to use the new HER2 antibody drug conjugate, trastuzumab Durextecan or TDXD for short. And in the third line, we have a multitude of options, uh, no one particular sequence. Uh, and so the treatment decisions are really individualized for the patient. So let's look now in a little more detail as how uh, we came to this algorithm today based on line of therapy uh, and reviews the clinical trial data that, that led to this, these, this sequence that, that we are using. So to jump right in, in the first line setting, um, these are, of course, the iconic survival curves from the first randomized trial of a HER2-targeted agent, and that was trastuzumab. And this was the first time we saw that adding a HER2-targeted agent to chemotherapy improved survival for patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. And based on, on this landmark trial, the, the combination of taxane plus trastuzumab was really a standard of care for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer patients for at least a decade. Uh, and today, I think the modern landmark trial in this setting is the Cleopatra trial. And this was uh, a study where we now added a second HER2 agent, that being pertuzumab, to trastuzumab and, and taxane therapy, and showed, I think, uh, remarkable improvement in progression-free and overall survival versus uh, taxane plus trastuzumab uh, doublet therapy. And shown here, the long-term follow-up from the, the Cleopatra trial, the long-term follow-up curves now with about 100 months of follow-up. Uh, and as you can see here, I think there, there is now a greater number of patients with long-term remissions and, and, and a greater number of patients alive today based on the addition of the second HER2-targeted agent. And, and I think it's pretty clear from, from these results that we, we have changed the natural history of HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer uh, with this approach. And this is still our current first-line uh, preferred regimen for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. So moving on to the second-line setting, and, and maybe, Sarah, I'll have you take us through the clinical data that, that have led to, to, to the preferred approach in, in the post-Cleopatra setting. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Um, it's great um, to be talking about this topic because as you've already highlighted, there have been so many amazing advances in recent years. Um, and now um, we have a number of new agents, as you highlighted earlier, that have really hit the scene in the last three years or so for patients who have disease that's already been treated with a line or two of therapy. And the first of these I'd like to highlight is the data surrounding tucatinib. Tucatinib is a HER2-selective tyrosine kinase inhibitor distinguished from lipatinib in its relative selectivity for HER2, therefore sparing HER1, which causes a lot of GI toxicity. Um, Trastuzumab Durextecan was another um, very recent addition to our armamentarium. This, similar to TDM1, is an antibody drug conjugate, but it differs from TDM1 in the fact that there's more 
of the cytotoxic payload loaded onto each antibody. And the payload differs in its mechanism of action being a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. Um, and it also differs from TDM1 in that trastuzumab directs TCAN has a membrane permeable cytotoxic payload, allowing that chemo to leave the cancer cell that it's been targeted to and kill neighboring cancer cells that may have lower expression of HER2. The Destiny Breast 01 clinical trial was a phase two single arm study that showed marked activity of this agent in very heavily pretreated patients, objective response rate of over 60%, median PFS, um, quite long, around 16 months at the initial presentation. And based on these very promising data, the FDA granted accelerated approval of this agent at the end of 2019. Um, the one notable toxicity we'll talk about a little bit later is lung toxicity, so we'll go into that. But this drug was more recently um, evaluated in a randomized clinical trial called Destiny Breast 03. It went head-to-head -head against TDM1. So this is the first randomized trial of two ADCs head-to-head -head against one another in breast cancer. Um, in this clinical trial, TDXD um, was given to patients um, who had previously received trastuzumab and ataxane, so very similar design to Amelia, and again, was compared to TDM1. And the results were really quite breathtaking, actually presented at ESMO in 2021, showing a significant improvement in the progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.28 and a p-value with more negative numbers after that to 10, 10 to the negative 22nd. So more zeros than I've ever seen in a p-value in my career. And the progression-free survival appeared to be, um, regardless of different patient subgroups, the response rate was close to 80%. And if you compare these data to the data we saw with Cleopatra in patients who were very um, naive to prior treatment, these data um, compare favorably. So it makes me wonder if soon we'll be seeing TDXD beat THP in the frontline setting. We'll have to wait for that trial to mature. So in summary, we have um, the uh, this following approach uh, as of 2022 for um, treatment for patients with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer, as you mentioned, as of now, THP is the frontline therapy gold standard. Um, but in the second line, we have a new gold standard, TDXD. Um, for those patients with active CNS disease, tucatinib trastuzumab capecitabine is also available, although we are seeing promising activity of TDXD in patients with stable brain mets at baseline. So stay tuned for more data there because these ADCs may actually cause activity or cause shrinkage of tumors in the brain. In the third line setting and beyond, we don't have good data to tell us how to sequence these agents. We have TDM1 available, trastuzumab, tucatinib, capecitabine available, and a number of other agents, including neratinib, a pan-HER inhibitor with some interesting activity in the brain. Margituximab is available in combination with chemo, but really seems to work best in those patients with an FC gamma receptor 3 genotype that predicts for benefit from that. Um, and then um, other data supporting trastuzumab plus lapatinib. And so this brings us to our discussion of um, 
activity of these agents in uh, in disease that may not be HER2 amplified. And um, Shanu, can you maybe take us through some recent, very promising and compelling data relating to ADCs in uh, non-HER2 amplified breast cancer? Yes, I mean, actually, Sarah, to, to build on, on what you had already started to talk about, I mean, um, trastuzumab durexdecan specifically is, um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a next generation HER2 antibody drug conjugate, and it does have some unique mechanisms of action and properties. Uh, and, and most important of these, I think, is the bystander effect, which, as you described, allows the payload to pass through the HER2 positive cell into surrounding cells. Uh, and, and target cells that may not have high levels of HER2 expression. In fact, it can target cells with variable levels of HER2 expression. Uh, and, and, uh, and so this particular property lends TDXE to be, you know, broadly active across a range of tumor types and, and levels of HER2 expression. And so in the phase one trial shown here, um, investigators tested trastuzumab can in patients with heavily pretreated HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. And HER2 low metastatic breast cancer is defined as those tumors with IHC scores of one plus or two plus without gene amplification. And we previously would have called these HER2 negative breast cancers. And you can see really nicely how active TDXD is for for these uh, for this sub subgroup of patients with with her two low breast cancer and remember our our the other her two targeted therapies we've talked about really have not shown to be active for patients with this low level of her two expression so these were very exciting uh, data for a her two targeted agent in a new group of patients uh, so building on on this trial uh, is is the Destiny Breast 04 trial which is the first randomized phase three study of TDXD versus chemotherapy of physician's choice for patients with HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and this was a, a multi-center study. It was for patients who had HER2 low breast cancer who had previously received at least one, but not more than two lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. And additionally, patients who had hormone positive HER2 low breast cancer uh, had to have endocrine refractory disease. So this was a pretty advanced pretreated population of patients. Uh, as mentioned, HER2-low was defined as, as tumors with IHC scores of 1 plus or 2 plus without gene amplification. And here patients were randomized 2 to 1 to either TDXD or chemotherapy of physician's choice. Uh, the primary endpoint of this trial was to look at progression-free survival by blinded independent review in patients with hormone-positive HER2-low breast cancer. Uh, and this group was chosen... Uh, particularly because it is the predominant subgroup within the HER2 low population. Um, but there was there were secondary uh, endpoints that were tested in a hierarchical fashion, including then progression-free survival for all patients, uh, overall survival for the hormone-positive patients, and again, for all patients on study. And the plan was to enroll 540 patients, approximately the majority with hormone-positive breast cancer and a smaller group with hormone-receptor-negative breast cancer, again, to reflect the natural prevalence of these groups within the HER2-low population. And so these are, the, I think, the key efficacy uh, findings and starting with the progression-free survival curves. On the left, for the hormone-receptor-positive cohort, you can see 
Very early on, there was a separation of the two curves in favor of TDXD, and this was maintained over the course of the of the follow up of trial of this trial. Uh, the PFS hazard ratio was 0.51 with a significant p-value, and the median PFS improved from 5.4 months with chemotherapy to 10.1 months with TDXD. And so given the positive results for this group, we were then able to proceed with PFS analysis for the entire study population, and those curves are shown on the right uh, and you can see, so so this is now a group that includes the hormone receptor negative HER2 low patients, which we also call triple negative breast cancer. Uh, and the results were identical, nearly identical. The PFS hazard ratio was 0.5 and the median PFS improved from 5.1 months to 9.9 months in favor of TDXD. Uh, overall survival was a key secondary endpoint in this trial. And on the left for the hormone positive cohort, the OS hazard ratio was 0.64, again, statistically significant. And the median overall survival improved from 17.5 months with chemo to 23.9 months with TDXD, which is a gain in survival of over six months. And on the right, the results were, again, similar for the whole study population with a gain in survival of 6.6 months in favor of TDXD. And just to put these data in context, I mean, it's, they're, they're very compelling, particularly given how rarely we see survival advantage uh, with new therapies in the late line metastatic setting. So, so these were pretty, I think, exceptional results. And then finally, these are the curves from an exploratory analysis looking just at those hormone receptor negative patients, the triple negative patients on trial. And the results are entirely consistent with the primary study results. And the hazard ratios are 0.46 and 0.48 for PFS and OS, respectively. This, of course, is a particularly poor prognosis population. So the absolute numbers are lower. Uh, the median PFS with chemo was only 2.9 months, and that improved to 8.5 months with TDXD. And the median overall survival with chemo was 8.3 months, and that more than doubled to 18.2 months with TDXD. So I think these are very, very clinically meaningful results. And so I think, you know, based on the Destiny 4 data, we, we may see the first HER2-targeted therapy approved for patients, uh, a new population of patients uh, with HER2 low breast cancer uh, and with TDXD as, as the standard of care uh, in that setting. And, and these data will apply to a almost 50% of patients with HER2 metastatic breast cancer. So, so very, uh, I think, important and, and potentially practice-changing data. And, and we look forward to, to, to the uh, availability of this drug uh, for for that setting, um, you know. So so moving on. I mean, look, there are many factors we consider when making treatment decisions for our patients. Efficacy often is foremost. Uh, however, the counterpart point to this is safety and toxicity. Um, so so let's look at some of the key toxicities that we encounter uh, with the common HER two targeted therapies today. And so. Uh, starting with diarrhea, and, and I, I want to say this is a common toxicity of a number of, of HER2-targeted therapies, uh, probably most prominently uh, pertuzumab, one of the monoclonal antibodies, and also our tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, we see fairly consistent rates of and high rates of, of diarrhea in, in all of the, the, the HER2-targeted TKIs. Uh, it's interesting to point out that the diarrhea in our patients does not correlate with pre-existing GI conditions. So our, our patients with underlying Crohn's disease or colitis don't have a higher predilection. 
And I guess the key with managing to- uh, the GI toxicity or the diarrhea toxicity in our patients is really to make sure that patients are aware, to be well hydrated, um, to to learn to avoid those things in their diet that could be exacerbating the diarrhea, and of course to use anti-diarrheal therapies promptly um, to to keep the the diarrhea under control and and uh, avoid the the need of dose reductions or or changes in therapy. In particular, one one thing that was interesting with the TKI data, and of course, neratinib of, of the three available TKIs has the highest rates of diarrhea, highest rates of high grade diarrhea, in fact, uh, and 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 it made it makes it a very challenging therapy to to deliver. Uh, and so investigators did conduct a really interesting trial called the control trial, where they looked at different strategies to mitigate the diarrhea risk from neratinib. Uh, and they looked at various different uh, different supportive agents besides loperamide, steroids, cholestopol. What they found was most effective was using a gradual dose escalation approach. And that brought the high-grade rates of diarrhea down to the levels that we see in other therapies. So again, now you know, making neratinib a more, a more feasible option uh, to deliver. With regards to cardiac toxicity, and this this is either subclinical declines in EF or clinical heart failure, and this this is a potential concern with, I think, almost any of the HER2-targeted therapies we deliver. Um, And I think we first recognized this risk with trastuzumab, uh, and thankfully, there didn't appear to be any additional or cumulative risk when we added pertuzumab to trastuzumab. And I think the current recommendation really is for patients at baseline to have an EF of at least uh, 55% or 50% uh, and to monitor these patients regularly while they're on therapy. And, and if we see declines in EF below 50% to, to hold therapy uh, and to optimize cardiac function, and in most cases, we're able to successfully resume. Moving on to infusion reactions, these are um, potential with ADCs. Uh, and monoclonal antibodies, of course, uh, for the majority of, pa- you know, these range from mild acute reactions, but occasionally to anaphylaxis. So something to be aware of, especially when you're using a new agent for the first time. Uh, probably an important toxicity to mention is lung toxicity. And, and we, this is a particular toxicity of trastuzumab deruxtecan. And, um, we learned this from the early trials of this agent. Uh, and it, the lung toxicity ranges from asymptomatic radiographic findings, but can go all the way up to fatal cases of ILD. So a really important thing to be aware of when using this drug. Um, overall, we see rates of 11 to 15%. This is what we saw in, in the DESTINY-1 trial, which was a, a trial of heavily pretreated HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer patients. Um, the onset can can be between four to five months of starting therapy. So it's something you have to be aware of. Uh, throughout the patient's course on treatment. Um, there are uh, studies that have now looked at identifying risk factors. So, so uh, this allows us to maybe uh, consider the risk benefit for an individual patient based on these factors. And th- these include things like uh, having a low baseline oxygen saturation uh, or the presence of other lung co- comorbidities uh, and, and low baseline oxygen saturations. There are now uh, there has been a very extensive effort, I think, to educate physicians and patients about this potential risk, and there are guidelines available, so tools for physicians to be able to identify and manage this uh, particular lung toxicity, uh, and, the, and these are widely available. Uh, and I think the key really is awareness to, to have a high suspicion for, for um, 
you know, this possible toxicity in patients with respiratory symptoms or with new sort of inflammatory findings on, on scans. And, and the first thing is, is to promptly hold therapy and then launch an investigation into possible etiologies. And if this is lung toxicity, then you want to start steroids early. And I think that's the key to, to managing this particular uh, lung risk. Um, one of the, I think, key things to mention is that for patients who have asymptomatic or grade one findings, if those findings do reverse fully after holding therapy and instituting steroids, there is a potential to re-challenge patients with, with grade one uh, recovered lung toxicity. However, very critical to mention that patients who have any kind of symptomatic or grade two or higher lung toxicity really should be permanently discontinued from TDXD therapy. Uh, and I, I think we need to strictly adhere to these um, guidelines because uh, uh, we've seen that if we do that, we are able to minimize the, the high-grade events uh, uh, and deliver this important therapy safely to our patients. So, so Sarah, maybe I'm going to end there and, and uh, ask you maybe to recap our 2022 approach um, to the treatment of metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer again. Absolutely. It certainly is quickly evolving, isn't it? Um, we basically have, I think, at my last count, eight uh, HER2-directed therapies FDA approved for our use in the first-line setting. Standard of care is to use THP, and the second-line new standard is TDXD, with a number of other agents available to us, um, including tucatinib, capecitabine, trastuzumab, especially for those with active brain metastases. TDM1 remains a, um, a therapy that we can use, and we have a number of other agents available as well, and all of these therapies are helping patients live longer. Um, we also have data now supporting one ADC, TDXD, for HER2 low breast cancer. This is a very novel finding and almost immediately practice changing. Um, and uh, there are going to be a number of ongoing studies evaluating this agent in um, uh, triple negative breast cancer and in patients with active brain metastases. So stay tuned. There are a number of adverse events we need to follow and notify patients about and monitor and treat proactively. We have to um, very carefully monitor patients for interstitial lung disease with TDXD. Most of the time, these are highly uh, treatable as long as we catch them and treat them early. So I think um, if we have a, a meeting, you and I again in 2023, the landscape may again be quite altered based on the results from new clinical trials. Um, but I do think it's an exciting time for us all. Thank you, Sarah, for that excellent summary and recap. Uh, and to all of you, thank you for, for joining us. And I hope you found this review of the approach to HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer uh, helpful and, and informative for your clinical practice. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources and is supported by independent educational grants from Daiichi Sankyo and AstraZeneca. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.